0: be turning in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our series. Let's read these verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is His lot. Who can bring Him to see what will be after Him? Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, God Almighty, full of steadfast love and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come before You now as Your Word is open before our eyes and before our hearts. We come and we ask that You would once again, quiet our minds and our hearts and that You would fill us with a desire to know and to understand Your Word. What You have to say to us in these verses. Father, make that known, make it clear. And help me as I seek to stand before Your people, uh, to proclaim Your Word, to make it known to them with clarity and with passion and with understanding. And Father, also as I seek to give all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, may He receive the glory. May it be all about Him. And may it be also for the good, for the upbuilding, for the edifying of these people, Your church. May You do these things this morning, O Lord. May You fill us with Your Spirit. May You give us eyes to see. May You give us ears to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we saw in the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, the terrible and beautiful reality of time. Terrible because of how we saw that certain times and seasons can be very dark because of the reality of sin and the fall. But yet we also saw that time is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing because God uses every season and every time for His glory and for the good of His people. So after showing us those truths about the terrible and beautiful reality of time, the preacher now moves on in order to continue showing us what He has observed and learned about life under the sun so that He can teach us how to live in this world. And remember, that's why He's showing us all of these things, what we have already seen and what we are going to continue to see in this book. With every chapter and every page that is turned, the preacher the author of Ecclesiastes is showing us the reality of sin and how it affects our lives. And then he is teaching us in light of that, in light of that reality of sin and how it affects us, how we should be seeking to live in this world. So now we come to... Verse 16 of chapter 3, and the preacher says, Moreover, moreover I saw under the sun. And that's just another way of saying again. Again I saw, or still I saw. This is, the, this is how the preacher transitions to what he wants to show us next. And if you were just to scan through this book, he says again a lot. If you just look briefly in chapter 4, he says it three or four times. He's just moving from one event or one observation to another. Again, I saw. Again, I saw this. So that is what he's doing here in these verses. He's moving us along. So moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The preacher has observed that where justice and righteousness should be found, wickedness is there instead. Wickedness has taken its place. Places like the courts of law and other forms of government. The very places that you would expect to be representing justice and righteousness. They too have been affected by the curse of the fall. They too are corrupt with sin. And that is still true for us today. The same corruption that affected the places of justice and righteousness in the preacher's day still affect them in our day. The government and court system still do not serve justice as they should. Partiality is still shown and bribes are still taken. Some people are wrongly convicted of crimes that they never committed. And then there are those who are guilty and yet go free. Authority is abused and the sword of justice is handled wrongly. But how? Right? Right? How can this be? How can it be that the very places that should be representing justice and righteousness be corrupted by wickedness? I mean, that's their sole purpose, is it not? They are to be wielding the sword of justice with complete righteousness. That is their purpose. They are to give righteous to the weak, to the wrong. So how can this be? Well, human beings are there. Human beings are in these places of authority. Sinful human beings who do not love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do not love their neighbor as themselves. That's how Jesus summed up the law of God. So as long as there are human beings involved in the places of justice and righteousness, then there will be corruption. It will be there. Because we are all corrupted by sin. We have all traded justice for wickedness. Every single one of us. And that's why what the preacher says here is not only true of the places of justice, but it is also true of every human relationship something that we are going to see Him expand upon later on in His book. We have all treated other people, our neighbors, wrongly. We treat some people differently than we do others because they may look, act, talk, or do things differently than we do. We show partiality and fail to treat people with complete justice and righteousness. Therefore, That's the reason why we have a corrupt system of government and departments of justice that are filled with sinful people who love and care for themselves but do not love their neighbors. But one day, they're all going to be judged. The preacher says, I said in my heart, he's speaking to himself here, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. This is verse 17. For there is a time for every matter and every work. The preacher knows that this perversion of justice and righteousness is not going to last. Because there is a time for every matter and for every work under the sun. Today, it seems that wickedness prevails over righteousness. But oh, the day is coming, and will come at just the right time, as we were looking at in the beginning of chapter 3, God has control over every time and matter, and everything comes to pass when He wants it to, in His time, within His control. And so it is true for the day of justice. It will come at just the right time, when He wants it to come. So God is going to judge all people. The day is coming when justice will scatter all the darkness. And we saw this theme of judgment last week when the preacher said that God seeks what is driven away. Speaking of time and history. So one day, every person who has lived, every person is going to stand before the judgment throne of God. And the one, as we saw last week, who is going to be sitting on that throng is King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to be on the judgment throng of God. And He is going to call before Him all of time and all of history. He's going to call before Him everything that everyone has ever done. And they will stand before Him completely exposed. He will judge all nations. And within His court, within the Lord Jesus Christ's court of justice, there is no perversion of justice and righteousness. They are perfectly upheld in the court of Jesus Christ. Which means that if you want Jesus to declare you not guilty, then you must stand before Him in perfection and complete holiness. Spotless. That is the requirement of the court of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that for a moment. In our courts, in our human system of justice, as the preacher is observing, there are bribes taken the rich, the influential, they may get off because of who they know. They may know the right people, but that doesn't fly with Jesus Christ. If you are anything or just a smidget below perfect righteousness, then He will cast you out of His court for all of eternity for destruction. Perfect righteousness is the requirement to be allowed into the heaven into the presence of Jesus. And so the only way that you can stand before Him in that perfect righteousness is that you realize, first of all, that you can't, Obtain this perfect righteousness on your own. You can't do it. In and of yourself, you cannot obtain the righteousness, the perfection that Jesus Christ requires. So you must realize that. Because in working for it, you're just working in vain. It's not going to happen. And then second, you must realize that Jesus has done it for you. He has obtained this perfect righteousness. He has lived the life that is required of you on your behalf. So you must realize, you must be trusting in that, and you must be delighting in the fact that Jesus has lived the perfect life for you. He has succeeded where you have failed. And it is only through Jesus that you can be declared righteous in the judgment that is coming. Now let's let's keep moving. Let's move on to verses 18 and 19. The preacher again says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. Testing. What does he mean by saying that God is testing us? Why would God... Be testing us. I think Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Why Everything Matters, gives a good explanation of what the preacher says in saying that God is testing us. So listen listen to this quote. Philip Ryken writes, Our present existence is a proving ground It is a test, not simply in the sense of something that we pass or fail, but also in the sense of something that demonstrates our true character. One of the purposes of life is to examine and ultimately to reveal our place in the universe and our true relationship to God. This test is not for God's benefit, as if there were anything about us that He does not know already, but for our benefit, so that we learn to recognize our mortality. Will we see ourselves for who we really are? End quote. So God means to use the curse and the reality of sin to show us, that we are but creatures living in His creation. Let's go back to Adam and Eve's sin for a moment that they committed in the garden in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. What was at the heart of their sin? They wanted to be God, remember? They wanted to have control. Over what they did and how they did it. They wanted to be God. So, God, in cursing them and us, because we are the same way, we seek that same control, we want to do things how we want to do them. So, God, in cursing them and in us, and us, is showing that we are but creatures and not the Creator. And that's why the preacher compares us to the beast, meaning livestock or cattle. He compares us to the beast of the field. He is showing that we are, in a way, no better than they are. That we are no better than the beast of the field. And I say, in a way because the Bible does tell us plainly that we as human beings are created in the image of God in a unique way, unlike any other part of creation. And also, we have been given by God dominion over the earth and everything in it. So in that way, we are not like the beast of the field. We are not like the animals. But make no mistake, as the preacher lays out plainly, you are a created being, just like the beast is. You are not the creator, and you will die, just like the beast of the field will die. We both share the same fleeting breath and the same mortality. Also, he says, as the beast return to the dust, so every person will return to the dust as well. In verse 20, He says, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. These words come from the curse that God pronounced over Adam in Genesis chapter 3. The preacher is once again taking us back to what God told Adam there. He's taking us back to the reality of the fall. God told Adam in Genesis 3, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's verse 19 of Genesis 3. That's what God told Adam as a consequence of his rebellion and our rebellion in sin. So bodily decay, that is the picture that we are given here. The preacher is saying to us, he's saying to you, hey, you see that rotting animal carcass over there? That's going to be you one day. That's going to be you pretty soon. You are going to die. And the body that you love so much is going to decay. It's going to die. It's going to decay like the beast decays. All of our bodies, if Jesus does not return first, will go to the one place, the grave. That's the place that He's referring to. You will go to the grave. And there you will slowly decompose into dust. And this is all the result of rebellion. This is all the result of trying to be like God. This is all the result of trying to live apart from God. Death comes. And what was once beautiful, our bodies, now begins to decompose until it returns to the dust from which the first man was created. And God intends for every human being to take a good look on that reality. He means for you to think very hard on that fact. And this is why watching death and experiencing it are so very painful and so very hard. Death shows us in a very vivid way what the result of sin is. Destruction. We are meant to be reminded when we see death and when we experience it ourselves, we are meant to be reminded that something is wrong in this world. That death and decay are not supposed to be. They weren't intended to be. They're not supposed to happen. So it becomes very clear in the moment of death and decay that you need a Savior. That you need help. You need someone to save you from this horrible reality. Because you cannot overcome it on your own. You cannot overcome this terrible reality by yourself. And this is the reason why Jesus came. As a man, that's the reason why He came. The curse, the punishment that we just read in Genesis 3. Jesus is the one who reverses that curse for us because we're helpless on our own. He is the one who has faced the the total reality of God's holy wrath that we so much rightly deserve. He is the one who has faced the reality of death that we've been looking at throughout this book and will continue to look at throughout this book. And He is the one who has faced the reality of the grave. And He is the one who has overcome it. Because on that glorious third day, He rose from the grave. And He declared in that moment, that death had no power over Him. When He rose from the grave, He claimed victory over death, over the grave, over the curse of sin and destruction. He claimed victory over that. For you. For you. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, claimed victory where the first Adam faced defeat. Jesus is the true and better Adam. As Paul says in his letter to the Roman Christians, that through the first man, Adam, death and destruction comes. But through the second Adam, through Jesus Christ, comes grace and life everlasting. Now, how are we to understand the question that the preacher asks about the soul of a man? Which he asks in verse 21. He says, Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Now, how much this man actually knew about the spirit of a person after death, I, I don't really know. We will see him say something else, though, about the spirit of a person in chapter 12, verse 7. There he makes it known that the spirit returns to God who gave it. So if anything, the preacher knows and understands that God is the one who has control over the spirit of a person and where it goes after death, after it leaves the body. So that makes me think that here in verse 21, in asking this question, he's just talking about what he can observe on his own. He's referring to what he can perceive on his own. What he can see. And it's the same for us. If you see a beast die, and then you see a person die, you can't see what happens to the to the spirit of a man. You can't see what happens. All you know is that the beast died and that the person died. God is the only one who can perceive or who can see what is going on in that moment where the soul actually goes. It all looks the same from our vantage point. And I think that's what he's saying in verse 21. But thanks be to God that we can know what happens to our souls after death because God has made it known to us in His Word. We can know what happens because God has made it clear in His revelation in the Bible. You can know there. Listen to what Paul says about the the possibility of him dying. This is what he writes to the Philippian Christians in his letter to the Philippians. In this moment, he's considering death. He knows that it's a good possibility that he's probably about to die. He doesn't know, but he's he's thinking about, well, if I die, what's going to happen? And this is what he says. He says, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, which means to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. That's Philippians 1, verses 21-23. to So for Paul, to die, death was gain. Why? Why was it gain? Because to die meant that he was going to depart and be with Christ. Now his body wasn't going to be. His body was going to face the grave. It was going to face the decomposition that we're talking about here in Ecclesiastes. But his spirit, his soul, his consciousness was going to go and be in the presence of Christ. And so that's why he says that I'm hard pressed between the two. You know, if I stay here, yeah, that means fruitful labor because I'm living for Christ, I'm preaching His Word. But to die means that I go and I am in the presence of Jesus. So He's hard pressed between the two. And the same is true for us. The same is true for every person who is trusting in Christ for their salvation. So if you're trusting in Christ, if He is your hope, if He is your trust, if He is your joy, if you are delighting in Him, then that means that when you die, you go to be with Christ until He comes back and raises your body up to be with Him as well. So rest assured, Christian, Jesus will not forsake you. He will not forsake you even in death, body and soul. Because on the last day He will raise up your body no matter what happens to it, no matter if it is buried in the grave, if it is lost at sea, if it is incinerated by fire or by explosion or whatever it may be, Jesus Christ is able to raise up your body and glorify it to be like Him. I mean, there are some people who think that for those who have lost their bodies in some terrific and horrible way like somebody that drowned at sea and then was eaten by, you know, whatever ate the body that God is not able to raise that body up that you, well you're just going to be in heaven but you're just not going to have a body I mean that is making little of the almighty Christ is it not who created you from nothing in the first place. So if He created you from nothing, then He can raise up your body and glorify it as He is glorified, no matter what happens to it. So rest assured in that truth. He will not forsake you, body and soul, even in death. Now the preacher gives his concluding statement on the matter. Now this is verse 22. He says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot or his portion. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So you are a creature who has a limited amount of time in this world. After that, you will die, just like the beast of the field will die. Then God will soon bring everything to a close and judge both the wicked and the righteous through His Son, Jesus Christ. And your portion from God until that time comes, until judgment comes, until He judges the righteous, and the wicked, your portion is that you enjoy the life that He has given you today. The guys and myself, we were talking about this this past Wednesday in our lesson that we were going through. And Ray was, he was talking about what we've been going through in Ecclesiastes. And he was saying, you know, life is today. We are to enjoy the life that God has given us today. Life is today. Tomorrow's not here. And yesterday is gone. Your life consists of what you have right now. It's very possible that you could leave in the next few moments and die. All your plans that you had for the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few months, the next few years, in that moment, they don't mean anything. Because your life is over. So until God brings everything to a close, He means for you to enjoy the life that He has given you in this moment. Moment by moment. Because that is what you know. Which is what the preacher means by who can bring him to see what will be after him. The answer is no one can besides God. So enjoy the time that you have before you Now, that is your lot. And the only way that you can do that, the only way that you can enjoy your life as God has intended for you to enjoy it, is if you can say, along with Paul, as we were just reading, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can you say that? Can you say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? If you cannot say that, then you cannot enjoy life truly. Because as the preacher has been showing us over the past few chapters and will continue to show us Throughout this book, without Christ, your joy is hollow. Now you may enjoy some things in this world. He's made that clear. You know All the pleasures that he had, he received pleasure from those things. So he had an amount of joy. He had some joy in this life. But over and over again, he watched it slip through his hands. And he went grabbing for it like a man chasing the wind, but he could not grasp it. He could not make it his own. He had it for a moment and then it ran away from him. And so that's what your life is like. If you cannot say to live as Christ and to die is gain. Your joy is hollow. Yes, you may have it for a moment, but one day it will be all stripped from you. And you will see that you really had no joy at all. But if, you do say, to live as Christ and to die is gain. If to die is gain for you because you get Jesus, then what is coming only makes it even better. Death is no longer something to be feared. It's no longer something that's terrifying. It's no longer seeking to steal away your joy, but instead it opens the doors so that you can see it as it really is. And so in that light, you can truly enjoy the here and now. And that's what this book is trying to teach you. We've been talking about gift, not gain. That's the motto of this man. Gift, not gain. Only when you can truly learn and know that you are going to die can you truly learn how to live? Which is living for Christ and then knowing and understanding that when you die, it's all gain because of Him. So cling to Jesus. Fly to Him. Run to Christ. And know that in His presence, there's only more and more joy. Because... With Him, there is fullness of joy. And in His presence, at His right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we thank You that in Christ, death is no longer to be feared. We've been seeing this over and over again as we go through these these words that the preacher writes. Death is no longer to be feared because it has been defeated in Jesus. All that He has done, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension to heaven. He did all of these things to satisfy your wrath against rebellion and sin and also so that He could raise us up and give us life. Father, with Him there is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore. And I pray that we would all be clinging to Him and that we would be learning to live by knowing that one day we will die. But with Christ, death is gain. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.